Well, it is good to be with you this morning. I hope that uh, I find you well. I hope that you're, you're here and you're enjoying the beautiful weather and you are not too overwhelmed by everything that you need to do in the midst of this Christmas season. Christmas season, as we know, is often a season of busyness. Even though it shouldn't be, it ends up being a season of busyness, a season where we have so much to do. Um, I didn't introduce myself already. My name is Trevor. It's, I'm one of the pastors here. It's just good to be with you in the middle of this Christmas season. Good to be here in this beautiful place. Good to be in uh, Scripture together, hearing from God together. Uh, we as a church, we just, we just so, we so believe that Jesus is worthy. We so believe that encountering Him, that connecting to Him, that meeting Him is just worth everything. And we gather together in this space each week to encounter God and to believe that God has something to say to each and every one of us. And so we look forward to hearing from him this morning. If you have a Bible this morning, would you open with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 is the text that we will spend some time in together this morning. Luke chapter 3, I'll give you a second to get there. Well, with all of the Christmas preparation, I wonder how many of you, by show of hands, already have a tree? How many of you have already purchased a tree? Yes, almost all of you have. I imagine you've got some ritual. Some of you have a tree that you had to get out of some closet somewhere or some sort of attic, and you had to put the poles together and get all of the, the artificial leaves back, and maybe you had to plug it in to have your lights come on. Maybe some of you did maybe what my family does, which is we went to a Christmas tree lot right here in the city. We don't have the joy here in, in Los Angeles of having really close to us uh, a place, Christmas tree farms, so we go to lots, we go to parking lots that are empty most of the year, and then all of a sudden are filled with, with Christmas trees, and we purchase them. Maybe some of you did drive out somewhere further away and get a Christmas tree and chop down your own tree. Anybody chop down their own tree this year? Anybody do that? Okay, yeah, none of you did. That's what I expected. Um, so most of us go to Christmas tree lots or we have an artificial tree. Um, our family, we get our Christmas tree as early as you possibly can, which is the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday. We don't go, well, we do go shopping, not for gifts, but for a Christmas tree. I, I feel like Thanksgiving is the only holiday that keeps Christmas from creeping up into Halloween. So I'm thankful for Thanksgiving. We get our tree every year. We go to a particular Christmas tree lot because our family likes a particular variety of Christmas tree. It's very pretty. Um, it's called a silver tip. It looks a bit sparse, but it allows you to see all of the ornaments. And we get the tree, and we bring it home, and we decorate the tree. And this year, we even got ourselves a Christmas tree candle a candle that smells like Christmas tree because the pretty Christmas tree we get is not that fragrant. And so we wanted the fragrance and we wanted the beauty and we've sort of orchestrated a Christmas tree experience in our home. And going to get the Christmas tree is always for our family a bit of an adventure. I imagine it is for you as well. There's a lot of debating how tall things are. Uh, at the Christmas tree lot, right? Is this six foot seven? Is this seven foot eight? Is it eight foot nine? There's a debate that goes back and forth. 
And then you're always, everyone's always touching the tree and grabbing the tree and trying to figure out which tree is the oldest. We all want trees in our homes that are the least dead looking and smelling. Because here's something that's very clear. They're all dead, right? The, the moment they get cut off from the ground, they're just dead trees that are slowly dying. And what we try to do is we try to get the trees that are the least dead looking. We want the ones that at least look like they're holding on to life. We purchase sometimes like little things you can put in the water. We have a good friend in the church who has all kinds of tips and tricks about bringing to the Christmas tree lot a soaked rag and you wrap it on the base in order to preserve just a couple more days of life, right? We're just trying to do everything we can so that when people in, in, enter into our home, they look at that tree and they think that doesn't look as dead as it really is. And that's really an analogy for much of our spiritual lives. That we are spiritually dead, but we do a lot to make sure that people don't notice it. We live in a world where people are spiritually dead, cut off of the root of life. And they've decorated themselves. They've got perfume or cologne on of their good works, trying to convince the world that they're very much satisfied. They're very much alive when the reality is they are spiritually dead. We want to be spiritually alive. We want to be living trees. But the truth is, for many of us, we're nicely decorated, we smell okay, but inside, we are dead. I got an opportunity to go to my sister-in-law's. They have a Christmas tree that is completely pink. It's a giant pink Christmas tree, and on some level, I admire that, because the tree isn't pretending to be anything it's not. You just know by looking at it, that's not a real tree. In the church, it's a little bit different. We want people to think that we are spiritually alive, spiritually healthy, at peace with God and neighbor. But many of us this morning are here and we are harboring inside of our hearts unforgiveness, cynicism, bitterness, frustration, and loneliness. So what does it look like to be spiritually alive is the question that we have this morning. What does it look like not to be a, a dead tree in the corner with all of the smells and the lights trying to project to the world that everything's okay? What does it actually look like to be spiritually alive? And we will get that this morning from Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. So if you have a Bible and you're there in Luke 3 with me, Please join me in reading 7 through 18. Luke 3, starting at 7. John, and this is John the Baptist. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, 
we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered in verse 11. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they said, Teacher, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? And he replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This is God's very word for us and to us this morning. We hope that God speaks to us through it. Do you ever think about how problematic prophets are? How problematic John the Baptist is? As we were reading this text together, were you thinking, were you wincing a little bit to yourself? I have been the last couple of weeks. Prophets have a tendency of saying things that hurt a little bit, things that cut a little deeply, things that we don't like to hear. But the prophet, and in this case John the Baptist, comes in order to proclaim things that we need to hear because it is his desire that we would be made new, that you and I would be made new, that we would be right before God. Christmas is a season of preparation. We talked about that last week. We like coziness. We like comfortable. The Danish have a word that maybe you've heard of. It's, I think, pronounced hygge uh, or hygge, or I'm sure you can ask Jens how to pronounce it. He'll happily tell you. But it's a word in that language that kind of means coziness and comfort. And we really like around the Christmas time coziness and comfort. But in preparation for Christmas, in preparation to meet Christ, we are called not just to coziness and not just to comfort. Rather, we are called to self-reflection. It means not just preparing our living rooms and preparing gifts. It means preparing our hearts. We sing that great song around Christmas time, don't we? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every... Heart, prepare him room. Every heart must be prepared to make room 
for God. It's my hope this morning that you would examine your heart and that you would make room for God in your heart. For we must prepare more than presents. We must prepare our hearts and our lives. And John the Baptist prepares us to do that. Last week we talked about his preparation in helping us do that. That he John the Baptist came as the ultimate hype man, right? He came as the one before Christ to proclaim Christ is coming, Christ is coming, get ready, Christ is coming, and Advent means coming. It's a season where we prepare for Christmas morning, celebrating Christ's first coming, looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. But John does more than just announce that Jesus is coming. He teaches them how they ought to live in light of Christ's coming. How we ought to live when we repent. Last week we talked about repentance, right? We talked about turning away from our sin, from selfishness, from self-centeredness, and turning towards God. The question on John's heart in this text is what should our lives look like if we have truly repented? What should our lives look like if we are to call ourselves Christians? What are the signs that we are truly alive spiritually? That's what John in the desert is harping on about. And there will be two responses to John in this text, a little early in, this, in his preaching here. There will be two responses to John. We won't get to them today, but if you're interested, you can thumb down to the bottom of the chapter. As John begins to proclaim his message, you'll notice that the people will listen to John's message and they will ask this question. John, what should we then do to honor God with our lives? Whereas the other people, not, not the people here, but the powerful, namely Herod, just past this text, wants to know not how do I respond to God, but rather how do I shut this guy up? That's often our response to the strong proclamation of God's word. We either find ourselves here this morning gathered together, longing in our hearts to want to know, how do I turn to the Lord? How do I please Him? How do I accomplish His desire? Or we think to ourselves, how do we get that guy to stop talking? We either want to eliminate the message or the messenger. John the Baptist, as you'll notice later, Herod wants to get rid of John the Baptist. Let me, before we dive in this morning, ask where you're at. Are you here this morning with a desire to honor God? Or do you want the messenger to stop delivering the message? Here's why I ask you that question. Because there's kind of two sermons happening here in the midst of John's preaching. And as we walk through this text, I'm going to give kind of two sermons. And let me just be really clear, some of you are going to really like the first one, and you're going to have a hard time with the second one. Some of you are really going to like uh, the second one, and you're going to have a hard time with the first one. So here's what I'm asking you to do, in light of the fact that it's our goal this morning not to hear from me, but to really hear from God's Word through John the Baptist. I'm going to ask you to hang in there, because we need both of these sermons. We need both of these messages. So this morning I'm going to talk first about judgment and then I'm going to talk about justice. Judgment and then justice. 
and we'll end with joy. But judgment and then justice. The text begins with judgment. I know what you're thinking. Judgment, this is the last thing I want to be thinking about as in the Christmas season. I get that. Nevertheless, we are focused on it as we are preparing for God's coming. John the Baptist isn't soft-spoken. In verses 7 through 9, he breaks the very first rule of influence. Don't insult your audience. Nevertheless, that's what he does. People used to pay a lot of money to go see Don Rickles, the famous insult comic, insult people in the audience. John the Baptist isn't joking, though. People are coming to see John the Baptist, and he turns immediately to those who are coming to see him, and he insults them. He calls them snakes. He likens them to snakes who, in the midst of a fire that is sort of out in the wilderness, as the fire begins to build, the snakes that are hidden away in their hiding dens are now emerging out of them, running quickly away from the fire. Throughout the Bible, God's enemies are regularly referred to as snakes. In Isaiah chapter 14, in Jeremiah chapter 4, John in the wilderness is proclaiming to the people who are coming to him that they're snakes because they are running in the wrong direction. Well, it appears as though they're running in the right direction. I mean, who runs towards the fire? Almost no one, save for the heroes, firemen and whatnot. Most of us, when a fire is coming, want to get away from the fire. So, too, the snakes are moving away from the fire. It seems like they're running in the right direction. It seems like they're doing the right thing. But for John the Baptist, he wants them to understand that there is a difference between running away from God's wrath and running towards God. John wants them to know that their desire to run away from God's wrath doesn't mean that their hearts are right. In other words, they are running in the wrong direction. John begins as he opens up to his audience by declaring to them that hearts that are not turned toward God are hearts that are in rebellion against God. John's words are not soft. No casual response will do. John says to a group of snakes that what they need most, what you and I need most, is transformation. How is your heart this morning? Friends, neighbors, brothers, and sisters. What direction have you been running to spiritually in this season? Is your heart soft to God's commands and leading? Or have you entered in even this space this morning with a heart that is hard, skeptical, and distant from the God who knows you, who made you, and who loves you? Are you filled with cynicism and unforgiveness? Now, none of us want to identify with Ebenezer Scrooge and his bah humbug nature around this season, but we all sense within him a kind of coldness to the poor, a coldness to our neighbor, a sort of self-interest that we all have inside of us. In A Christmas Carol, Scrooge gets a warning. He's visited by three spirits. This morning, you do as well. But your warning comes by way of John the baptizer. 
John wants them and us to see that God is coming. That's what Advent is about, what Christmas is about. And when God comes, God comes with judgment. We need a perfect judge. We need a perfect judge to sort all this out, don't we? Have you noticed how often we judge incorrectly? Have you noticed how often we're asked to make judgments? It feels as though the world is spinning faster and faster. More stories, more news, more headlines, more opinions. We're told that we need to have more opinions about more things more quickly than we've ever had them. We're expected to know, to be on the right side of history, to understand the whole story. Often we are pressured into opining before we even know the facts. And sometimes we discover that when all the facts come out, we were wrong. We were dead wrong. We were misled. We didn't see the whole truth. We didn't have the whole story. We need a perfect judge. The world needs a perfect judge, a judge who would come and would say, I see all of the things and I will judge perfectly. Now, some of us, we like the sound of that because we like right and good judgments. But for many of us, if we're really honest, we don't actually want a perfect judge. We want a partial judge. We want a judge who will show up and declare that the people we don't like are, are we shouldn't like. The people who, who do what we don't think should be done, those people, God would come and say they shouldn't do that. What we long for often is a judge that comes and would just agree with us. Oh, how wonderful we often think the world would be if God would just come and deal with our enemies. But the good news of the Bible is that if God is God and God is good and God is perfect and God is holy, that God judges all of us and that means all of us. And throughout the Bible, God's people long for a day where in which God would come and judge rightly. And the question that is asked repeatedly to us all throughout the Bible is, what will we do on judgment day? What will we say before the God of the universe on that day? How will we give an account for, for how we used all the gifts that God has given us? There will be a day when you will stand before God. I will stand before God. And the question we ought to ask as we anticipate God's coming is what will we say to the God of the universe on that day? Friends, the Bible teaches that how we relate to Jesus is the key factor on Judgment Day. Let me repeat that because you must know that. Let this settle into your mind and into your heart. The Bible teaches that how we relate to Jesus is the key factor on Judgment Day. What are we to do? Well, this has been John's call all along. He's called us to repent, to turn away from self first, to turn to God first living. It's what he wants us to do today. 
I, I hope that what you hear is that what God wants you to do today is to turn away from a life where you are at the center of everything and to begin to live as though you are made by a good creator who knows you and loves you, who has created you with purpose for purpose, to know him, to love him, to follow him, to be in relationship with him. To receive him, to make room for him, to allow him in to the mess that you have made in your heart and in your life. I want you to know that God wants to come into your heart to heal what is broken, to restore what has been destroyed, to forgive, to give peace where there is only anxiety. He wants to do that. And He can only do that if we turn away from self-centeredness and turn towards God. Now maybe you've done that. Maybe last week you made a decision to do that. Maybe last week you made a decision to do that and found yourself on Monday forgetting that you made a decision to do that on Sunday. What do we need to look for to know that we have trusted Jesus? Well, John gives the answer in verse 8. The answer is fruit, plural, fruit. To repent is to change one's direction away from self-destruction towards spiritual satisfaction. And what we get in return is a new life and a new heart as we receive Christ, His grace, His love, His mercy, His forgiveness. As we believe in Him and trust in Him, we get a new life and a new heart. Now, they might be thinking, we don't need to be made new. We're already Jewish. Our father is Abraham. You'll notice that in the text, right? That's part of what is on their hearts. Hey, wait a second. We don't need this newness. We don't need this repentance. We don't need this cleansing. We don't need this baptism. We don't need that. We're Jewish. And our father is Abraham. We're already right with God through our heritage. John says, no, your heritage isn't good enough. It may be an advantage, but it is not a guarantee of God's blessing. The Jews who came out to see John thought they were good. They were comfortable. I'm Jewish. My family's Jewish. We're good. Some of us think that today. Some of us think this morning, maybe you're here this morning, and you're thinking, you know what? I don't know God, but I know someone who knows him, and therefore, I think I'm good. You do not. This isn't... Uh, this isn't like a list at a nightclub, right, where you show up and, and you say, well, I, I know someone who knows someone and therefore I should be able to get in. The kingdom of God is not a list where you need to know someone who knows someone. John says you shouldn't even begin to think like this. In other words, John says, and we need to hear this, inherited salvation is no salvation at all. To come to Jesus, we must come on His terms. Not through an organization. Not through a family relationship. Not through church attendance. Those are all good things. Those are all blessings. But look what John says. He says, God can raise children from stones if He wants to. If you want new life, you must come to Jesus. 
He has it for you. He offers it to you. It is what you are searching for. If only the Lord would give us eyes to see it. If you want to be right with God, you must give yourself to Jesus, not to someone else. John says the axe is at the root of the tree in verse 9. Unfruitful trees are going to be chopped down. Dead, felled trees, even Christmas trees, they will eventually be gotten rid of. They will be burned. John is a dramatic preacher. His message, flee from the wrath of judgment like you'd escape a fire. Only flee to the one who is the good judge, for in him is the salvation you desire. If I knocked on your door, and you opened it, and I said to you, hey, I think the back part of your house is on fire. There's a good chance you wouldn't say, thank you, close your door, and go right back to what you were doing. There's a good chance that you would pause in that moment and say, even if I don't trust this pastor, even if I don't trust this preacher, even if I think he's not, he's, he's full of nonsense, he's a liar, even if you think that, you might, before you sit back down on the couch, just go check to see if your house is on fire. The point I'm making is that the claims that John has for us are too significant not to, worth, not to be worth looking into. Judgment is not politically correct. But judgment and wrath makes the way for salvation. After all, you can't be saved if you're not saved from something. God is the judge, but God is also the Savior. He is the one who rightly declares that our selfishness causes destruction. And at the exact same time that he says to us, your selfishness has caused destruction in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your relationship with your kids, at work, right? That, that you, you've done that out of selfishness. God is the same God who says, I will pay the damages out of love for you. You can pay for your sins or you can allow me to do that. If you repent and trust Jesus, you can be prepared for judgment day and there is no other way to prepare. So that's judgment. But secondly is justice. John's preaching is so powerful that people are listening and they start to wonder, what do we do? And in verse 10, John responds by speaking to three groups of people, the anyones, the tax collectors, and the soldiers. Notice that John's response to them when they say, well, what do we do then, John? What do we do then? His response isn't to say, just get baptized and you're good. No, John has been preaching baptism, and John very much wants them to get baptized. Of course that's what he's calling for, but he wants them to see, and you need to see, that baptism is the first thing that God calls us to do in faith, and it is the easiest thing God will ever ask us to do. Baptism is the beginning, not the end. Being a Christian must change your whole life, including how you live 
each day. How you do everything you do, including how you treat your neighbor. How you live and work in your job. It must change how you think about everything. The word do is featured a bunch of times in verses 10 through 14. John is not interested in people getting baptized to fulfill a spiritual ritual. He wants them to get baptized as a representation of the new life that they are experiencing with God. A life that is transformed by God. A life that is lived differently. And what does that look like? It looks like doing justice. We are commanded, the prophet Micah has told us, to do justice. To be a Christian is to be a person of justice. Justice must work itself into you so that you become not just a person who occasionally does some just things, but rather you become a person of justice. Notice that first John speaks to the anyones and the everyones. And what does he say in verse 11? How do we know that we have experienced the life transforming power of the gospel? One of the first things it will impact is how we view our extra stuff. What does he say to do? If you've got extra clothes, give it to those who don't have any. If you've got extra food, give it to those who don't have any. As you know, we as a church are collecting cereal for the West Side Food Bank. We're not just doing that. We're not doing that at all so we can pat ourselves on the back. We're doing that because we are Christian. And because we recognize that we are privileged enough to walk into a grocery store, my kids are privileged enough to pick out almost any cereal they want. And there are families all over Los Angeles who for them that is not something they can do. And sure, we can live with a very, a very sort of like strongest man wins mentality. We can live with a very sort of sense of like, I'm going to live for myself and think for myself and provide for myself. But may it not be for us. May it not be for the Christian. The Christian is to give their extra food and their extra clothes. If you are a Christian and you're like, well, I need need more to do this Christmas. You probably don't think that. But if you're looking for something to do this Christmas, and you got to do it for the right reason, you can't just do it to do it. you got to do it for the right reason. That's what John's talking about here. It should mark a life of repentance. Go and find extra stuff you have and give it away. That's what you can do. That is an act of justice. It demonstrates our repentance. So that's what you can do, what you should do. You should examine how do you relate to your stuff. Are you a Christian who, when you get extra stuff, you want more and more and more? Are you a hoarder, greedy, build more, more storehouses, more for me kind of person? If not, have you really allowed the transforming power of God to seep its way into your whole life? We must be, we must 
be a generous people. So that's to the anyone's. Then verse 12 and 13, to the tax man. Now remember, the tax collector in the Bible was often a person who collected taxes from um, those who were subjugated to Rome and then gave those taxes to Rome. But the way they made money was by extorting the people, by asking for extra tax. What does John say that the tax collector ought to do? They ought to collect tax, do their job faithfully, but not to collect extra. John's point here to be a Christian is to be someone who is not given in to greediness. Brother, sister, are you greedy? Friend, neighbor, do you know Christians who are greedy? We ought not be. God has been so generous to us. We will fail our friends and neighbors if we do not live lives of open-handed generosity that testify to the goodness of God. Finally, John speaks to the soldier. And he says to the soldier, don't misuse your authority. Don't oppress others. Be content with your wages. Again, they lived in a time and era where it was common to see soldiers misusing their authority. Jesus has a teaching on being struck on the, on the cheek by walking an extra mile. There was common that people would be used to seeing authority abused. What does John say to the soldier? Don't misuse your authority. Don't oppress others. We see with our own eyes the abuse of authority. We see bad politicians. We have seen bad police officers. What is the answer to bad police officers? Does John say, stop being a soldier? He does not. What does he say? He says, be a just and good soldier. What is the answer to bad police officers, to bad tax collectors, to bad politicians? What's the answer? The answer is what we need is judgment ready, identity in Christ, justice enacting Christian police officers, tax collectors, politicians. We see greedy people everywhere, unwilling to share. And the answer is to be a serious people converted by the gospel. John doesn't say go get a new job. He says be committed to fairness, to meeting needs, and be content with what you have. Do your job, Christian, faithfully. Do it compassionately. Do it with justice. Are you here this morning? Do you find in your job that you're tempted to be greedy? Do you find in your work that you're tempted to exploit? Do you find that you're tempted to lift and elevate yourself above everyone else? Sure, I expect that from the world. Do not expect it from Christians. How you practice justice shows how you've responded to God. How you practice justice. If you are greedy, if you are unjust, if you do not take justice seriously, you might not be a real Christian. 
what must you do? Turn away from those practices. Turn towards God. Receive grace and forgiveness and love. Be transformed and look for the fruit of repentance. Justice. Lastly, in wrapping up, just a note about joy. John the Baptist's preaching causes people to wonder, is this guy the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? And John answers that question in verse 16. He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. There's one who's coming, and I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals. There's one who is way, way, way above me. He's coming, and he's coming to judge perfectly. He's coming with perfect justice. He's coming to make things right. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. He's coming, John says. Jesus is coming. I want to end by just mentioning why we have joy. Because if you hear a sermon about judgment, the first reaction isn't joy. If you hear a sermon that says, we must examine our lives for the fruits of justice to demonstrate whether or not we have truly repented and truly placed our trust in Jesus, we can feel that weight and begin to go, ah, that's hard. Maybe what you've heard is mostly in this sermon, me coming down on you saying, are you ready for judgment? Are you ready to be judged? Are you just? Are you being a just person? Are you practicing justice? I just want you to hear this. If our salvation was dependent on us enacting justice perfectly, who among us would be able to be saved? None of us. Notice that John doesn't say, we don't need a Savior, we just need to be more just. No, he doesn't say that. What he said is, we need a Savior who can then Give us his spirit and transform us so that we might be just. The key to us being judgment ready, the key to us being a people of justice isn't found in us. It's found in the gift God has for us Christmas morning in Christ our Savior. He has come and he is coming so that in him we would find that even when we work for justice, we can stand before him and say, God, I've worked for justice, but my justice is imperfect. It's tainted, it's broken, it's wrong. And that in him what we would hear is him say, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are saved, you are redeemed. You can be one with me as my child, not based on how perfectly you get justice, not on how ready you are, for judgment by fleeing wrath. You can get it not by your actions and efforts, but by the gift I have for you. Don't leave this morning and don't leave John the Baptist. Don't leave this scripture. Don't leave this text thinking to yourself that your justice and your judgment readiness is dependent on your effort. It's dependent on Jesus who offers you himself as a free gift. And when you know Him, and you know that you're standing on Him, 
when you know that your grace and identity and forgiveness is in him, it'll do two things. It'll cause you to care about justice and it will cause you to perpetually rejoice in the ways that you fall short. For you know that God's forgiveness and grace is never leaving you. May we find joy in the God who delivers us from judgment, in the God who equips us for justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture. We thank you for John the Baptist. Man, it is, Lord, it is challenging to listen to John the Baptist preach and not feel like he is just like sandpaper on us, just trying to smooth out our rough edges. His word, it scrapes up, it rubs up against our selfishness, against our I can do it attitude on the I don't need this, it's not for me, I'm okay as I am. It gets us, Lord. It, again, it disturbs those of us who are comfortable. But for Lord, for those of us who have ears to hear, it provides great comfort. And that's what I long for, Lord, that we would experience your comfort, that we would be judgment ready because we have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, that we would be a people of justice because we have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, and that we would stand before you on that day with a smile on our face, knowing that we have your grace, your forgiveness, your life, your light, your love in us, because of Jesus. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their hearts employ. Lord, I pray that we would know the joy that comes at Christmas, the joy of right relationship with you, the joy of our salvation. And I pray for those who are here this morning and don't have it. They are like dead trees. Pretty on the outside, dead on the inside. They're distant from you, running away from you, guilty, frustrated, angry, cynical, hard-hearted, bitter, skeptical. Lord, soften their hearts so that this morning they might meet you. Transform them. Offer yourself to them again this morning that they might know that in and through your gift of grace they might be saved. It's in your name we pray. Amen.